Welcome to Terminal Talk, a podcast on mainframe and mainframe-related topics. I'm Frank. I'm Jeff. And we have a great guest with us today, a real historian on the mainframe. Luke, can you tell us uh, a little bit about who you are and and how you started here? Okay, great. Uh, Frank and Jeff, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm a a son of an Italian immigrant from a little town outside of uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I got my uh, master's in mechanical engineering from the University of Pittsburgh and uh, joined IBM in 1968. So, might be helpful if they had a little sense of uh, my career in IBM. When I joined in 1968, uh, I was in what was called product test. Back then, there was like an independent organization that evaluated machines uh, before they were actually uh, delivered to even manufacturing and or customers. So that's where I started. And then I, uh, I moved into the laboratory uh, to work on something Back then, it was called FS. It stood for Future Systems, and this was going to be a rather exotic machine that never came to be, actually. And uh, uh, so I, I went on to what ended up being the uh, 3080X family of machines, uh, 1980 time frame. So I had multiple uh, positions throughout my career. So those early stages, I was first-line manager in product test, came up at the laboratory, uh, did a little bit of technical work, and, uh, for example, the power thermal architecture on the 3081 that is common to actually today's machines. And I had management jobs in microcode management, systems test management. Uh, I, uh, mid-'80s, uh, I was sent down to the plant. I became the... Uh, manufacturing engineering manager, then the assistant plant manager. And the, the plant is that? Fish oh, I'm kill? sorry. No, fish, uh, Poughkeepsie, okay? Okay. All this is Poughkeepsie. I spent my entire 50 years in Poughkeepsie, believe it or not. So, uh, assistant plant manager, plant manager in Poughkeepsie. And, uh, and then I actually moved back uh, to the laboratory uh, when we went and did the, what was called the CMOS transition and had lab director positions in the laboratory. Retired in 1998, came back as a consultant in 1999. I'm still here, so <laughs> this is a little strange. I so, have one important question right sure. up front. Do, do you know Charlie Lawrence? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't, no. Oh, wow, okay. No, I do not. Okay. Maybe, maybe you showed a picture of him. I went. There's so many people that I've worked with, it's hard to remember them all. So anyway, the, that's a little bit about my career. And so you started uh, your career when the mainframe was a baby, right? It was four, 360 started in 1964, right? right? I, actually, I, I did not uh, work on 360 all at all or 370. Uh, I really spent most of my time on this uh, 3080 program. So let me just – let's talk about uh, the System 360. So what was happening um, – believe it or not, uh, it, it's hard to believe the beginning of the mainframe. And you could actually – I bring it back to 1880 as an example when the U.S. government did the census of the country. Every, you know, every 10 years they have to do a census. Uh, when they did it in 1880 and they finally got it done – they realized that when they were going to do the 1890 census, that they would never be able to do it 
the way they did it and get it done before the next one was ready. <laughs> so they put a challenge out to the country, to industry, you know, we need help. How can we, how can we do this census? In comes Herman Hollerith, and he invents the uh, punch card, which some of most people may not even remember these days. 80-card punch card, right? Which then gave way to tabulating equipment that would, you know, sort and add and calculate the data from these things that eventually led to uh, the invent- what I consider the beginning of the mainframes. So IBM uh, developed many families of computers uh, in, the, in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, there were like uh, there were models called 1400, 1620s, 7,000 machines. They were all different architectures. Uh, you know, didn't use the same components in them. It was a bit, it was like a, a nightmare for IBM in terms of development, in terms of doing all these machines. And our customers, every time they put a new model out, it was different. And they had to like redo all their, you know, infrastructure to get it to work. So um, I'm, I'm trying to. I guess I guess we kind of have to like reset our minds as to like what a computer was at the time because you're saying like there's all these different models the 1440 right. For, well, 1400 1400 yeah, yeah. and and each one was its own standalone correct okay. right right they were you know multiple multiple frames a lot of some of them had vacuum tubes in them but there was uh, core logic you know magnetic core logic in some of these machines Larger frames, they were like huge compared to today's machines. Uh, but like the key thing was all different architectures and just a nightmare to manage in terms of investment. So in uh, 1961, IBM realized this was not going to work. So a group of uh, scientists and engineers in IBM went off to a little town north of Greenwich, Connecticut, locked themselves up in a motel there, and it was called the Spread Task Force, Systems, Programming, Research, Engineering, and Development. And they invented, <laughs> they invented System 360 or the mainframe era. And, you know, just it was a case of common architecture can do scientific and uh, commercial calculations uh, standard interface for I.O., and a whole range of machines in terms of performance. So there was 360 model, 20s, 35s, et cetera. And what, what did a typical, like, or at least a target customer look like at this point? Uh, you know, to me, the, it was the uh, big banks were key, insurance companies, uh, were were the key things, and then educational institutions, and of course the government. Right. Okay. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the System 360 models, the Model 75, was uh, a key machine that was used to land on the moon. Okay, to help do all the calculations to land on the moon. So we had the 360, the 370, and from that I says the whole uh, mainframe. Air, uh, business had like three errors. 
there was that era, some 316, 370, and you asked, you know, what did these things look like? Right. They were rather large machines, uh, individual components, transistors, et cetera, mounted on cards, logic cards. These cards were par- plugged in boards, like boards that were, I don't know, foot wide, foot long, and uh, you know, uh, and mounted on huge gates <coughs> in a machine. You know, quite quite heavy. And so there were all these models: six System three hundred and sixty, and then System three hundred and seventy. There was a principle of ops, which meant we had an architecture that was common that we could write to, and so that became the uh, the real beginning of the mainframe. That I call the solid state era of computers. Okay, in those in those machines too, um, you had to be you really had to be an engineer to to run them, right? Yeah, you had to be a lot more, you know, technically oriented, uh, you know, like uh, in terms of. Uh, Get him to operate. Sometimes I hate to say this, but people had scopes around <laughs> to sure. go and look at signals, and uh, so it was like uh, you know, kind of a kind of a different world radically than we had today. Okay, so <clears throat> uh, so that's the solid state era. As I told you, I joined in 1968, so it was like right in the middle or tail end <clears throat> of System Three. Uh, 63 actually what was coming what was being built at that time was system 370 and there were a whole range of models there one key thing is where were all these machines being developed and built so i think everyone should recognize that when you think mainframes it's poughkeepsie is the mecca of mainframes now there were other sites you know dramatically involved there was uh endicott new york obviously uh, Böblingen, Germany, big time. Kingston, New York, okay. There were probably a few other places. But in my mind, uh, mainframes was Poughkeepsie. Poughkeepsie is mainframes, okay. <laughs> I like to mention the, um, the Böblingen connection here relative to mainframes because remember I told you about the successor of 360 was 370, and the small end of that product line, System 370, Model 115 and 125, were developed in Böblingen, Germany. And so they were focused on smaller ends of the computer and began to focus on uh, CMOS. So, so let me tell you, and that'll come into play when we get into a, a, another era of this. So at the end of that solid-state era, which was in the uh, 70s, uh, late 70s, we switched to bipolar machines. And this was, uh, so I, I'd like to call this the bipolar era, which went on basically from 1981 to the mid-90s. Mid and just to be clear, this is bipolar components from individual surface-mounted? Correct. And okay. that, I, I was just going to – that's a good good question. <laughs> oh, to, no, a good question to get me into work <laughs> because what, what happened was the uh, bipolar thing allowed uh, the advantation of, uh, you know, circuits on chips, small chips. We had uh, the invention of something called the TCM, a thermal conduction module 
which was a physical structure that was about uh, six or seven inches square, weighed about 10 pounds. <laughs> and there were like 100 <laughs> chips on this single unit called a TCM. Today we have similar things. They, uh, the density of the chips are much greater. They're called MCMs, multi-chip modules. But this was a TCM made out of bipolar, and uh, all kinds of technical innovations came about to allow us to uh, uh, come up with the machines that we ended up with. And when I say that, things like um, how you'd cool this. The machines obviously put power to anything. It's going to give off heat. Right. So one of the one of the principal things is how you keep these very high dense machines cool. And we, in, you know, invented uh, pistons that sat down on the chips to help conduct the heat out. A very exotic thermal interface material, uh, <clears throat> and uh, water cooling. You know, so that that uh, became very common. And you're talking about like site water cooling. Well, multiple ways. One okay. was physically where the site you'd tap on to their water cooling system. And pump it through. It actually didn't go through the machine. It went in through a, a conversion unit. And then we had our own internal circling. But the heat was dissipated through the customer's water system. Right. Then we invented radiators. View that like uh, the radiator in your car where we'd pump water through the electronics. And uh, you'd blow air across the radiator. And that would exit into the customer's environment. For for many customers, was the the three sixty or three seventy or whatever their mainframe was that their first computer like in their I'm doing finger quotes in their data center at that point <laughs> or um, what I'm wondering is like this you know from what I've seen my 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 entire expertise of watching uh, a main, early mainframes get installed comes from watching Mad Men when they you know brought one in there. <laughs> I, I can't imagine companies are very keen to like rework their entire building to accommodate this. You know, the structure, this yeah, right, thing, like right, with, right, right. I think there was like a uh, evolution of there. There was a customer set, and I mentioned it before. Right, big banks, big insurance companies, the U.S. government, uh, colleges. I keep forgetting about colleges. I mean, when I wrote my thesis, my master's thesis, I ran it on a seventy 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 seventy, right, which was a prior to three sixty. So these there were there was infrastructure for that. IBM actually. <clears throat> would keep a constant dialogue, produce a paper that would would publish to the world to allow customers to prepare their the buildings. I mean that literally, prepare their buildings for what the f- machines were going to look like in the future huh. uh, so that they would have uh, enough water, enough power. Every time you turn around, these machines were using up more and more power. The other thing that happened with the bipolar thing was a tremendous expansion of Fishkill in terms of chip manufacturing. Obviously, we, we no longer belongs to IBM, Fishkill, because it was sold to global foundries. But that was the principal source of the technology, the chips that we used on all these bipolar machines. I like to tell a story or two about uh, – uh, let me tell you one about uh, – it was in 1988, I can remember – uh, and it was a bipolar machine that uh, was called 9000 family. The uh, processing of the wafers, uh, 
where the chips are. You know, you have a glass wafer and there's multiple chips on the wafer. Fishkill, uh, and the, they had a problem uh, at, in the third quarter of 1998 where the back end of their line uh, had a, a problem with it. The back end means the following. You, you normally start building the uh, transistor and then you do the wiring of the transistor on the chip. That's what they call the back end of the line. So there was a problem <clears throat> during that period. And uh, we, had, we had another chip plant, believe it or not. Chip plants are very expensive. I mean, they're billion-dollar investments. We had another chip plant that was in uh, France, outside of Paris, a place called Corbeil Assons. Sounds nice. Yeah, a nice <laughs> place. Actually, I, I was never there. I've, I've been to Montpellier, which is on the southern shore of uh, France, and that's where the systems were built for Europe. But uh, Corbeil-Sons was a chip plant. So what we did was <clears throat> we took the wafers, did the front-end processing of the chips in Fishkill, put them on a plane, flew the wafers to Corbeil-Sons, and they finished the back end of the line. And as you know, we always, and every industry in the world, manages their uh, business quarter to quarter, right? <laughs> the, bell, the bell rings at midnight on the 31st of the third month of the quarter, okay? So we took these wafers, uh, finished the processing of, in, over in, uh, in France, and I flew them back here, you know, cut them up, mounted them on TCMs. Remember I told you 100 chips per? Okay. So the next thing you ought to know is back then, and this is in the uh, 80s, I told you this would happen in 1988, it would take us about three to four weeks to get a machine through final systems test and manufacturing. That's not the case anymore, and we'll talk about that later. So what happened was with all this traveling, these mod, uh, wafers going overseas, return. I didn't get – I was the assistant plant manager at that time, and we did all the final system testing in Kingston on these machines. I didn't get all the uh, TCMs to mount in the machines till the beginning of September. Mm -hmm. Remember I told you it took three to four weeks to get a machine through final system tests? You have to realize these machines were quite large. They were physically – uh, I want to say eight to twelve frames, depending on model. Oh, really? And where a frame <laughs> is not a frame of the, today's frame. Z fourteen frame is twenty four inches wide, and I think it's about uh, four or five feet long. Okay, that these machines machines were you know like three feet wide, five feet long, five foot high, and they were like a dozen frames. You could only fit one machine on an 18-wheeler, okay, just to give you a sense of how big they were. So when I see the pictures of, like, the guy with the, the pleated pants and the plaid shirt sitting at the desk and there's, like, all this looks like furniture around him, that's part of the mainframe. Correct, right. It, like, I assumed it was, like, a like a living room set. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. I mean, these things, they were huge. I mean, huge machines, physically, physically huge, okay? So... There we are, 1988. It's September. I get the parts, you know, early in September, three to four weeks. So guess and I'm what? I'm in September, end of the quarter. Correct. Yep. Yeah. You got it. <laughs> so all the machines 
are coming off the line like the last couple days of the quarter because of this delay. So to me, uh, and this is IBM at its best and Poughkeepsie at its best, and uh, machines came off and they were coming off like like popcorn. They're the last couple <laughs> days of the quarter and they're ending up in what's called clean pack and cover. That's where they gate the frame, clean it up, put the covers on it, you know, pack it, what have you. In 24 hours, that's September, the last day of the quarter, we loaded 64 tractor trailers <laughs> worth of computers. This was like an amazing story. It was hard for me, and there I was managing these people. Well, actually, I wasn't managing them. I let them do their thing, right? <laughs> let the folks who know how to do this stuff uh, do this. But we, uh, we made the quarter – uh, through a miracle of uh, an awful lot of effort on the part of a lot of people. And uh, it was mind-boggling, and uh, I wish I could show a picture over this podcast where we had the all these trailers parked in the parking lot in Kingston. It looked like, you know, IBM was leaving town, you know, this kind of thing. <laughs> like a circus. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Do you have a picture with you? I do have that picture. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll put it out there on the Twitter. So yeah, you know, yeah, I nice. actually have that. That's one of my famous pictures. I love this picture. Great. 1988. So, but it's all, I, I attribute it back to, you know, people knowing, number one, knowing their job, and number two, just a huge dedication. It's not a case of somebody tell them you got to go do this. You just let them Go do that, and they managed to do that. So, just uh, just a sense of uh, uh, huge kind of effort, and but a dedication of a, a lot of good people to get the job done. Yeah, imagine sixty four tractor trailers in a in a manufacturing site trying to jockey to get to get them loaded and move that in a short period of time. It's, right. And those machines were heavy, right? Very very heavy. I mean, these were not, you know, just a, they all had casters on them, but one person couldn't move them. Right. It took like, you know, three, you know, like three people to push them across the floor, okay? So they're, this is not not uh, not a little tinker toy here. Yeah. This is uh, serious stuff. So the, the picture I've seen a lot, I don't know if this is before or after this, is the picture of like, you know, Here's eight megabytes of, of disk storage getting loaded onto a train or whatever. Is is DASD in the picture here yet? No, or? no. Okay. The DASD was shipped from uh, like mostly from San Jose. This okay. was just the main computer, okay? Uh, plus um, plus the consoles that went with it. You know, the operator consoles and right. things like that. But the DASD independent. Don't forget we had tape drives, and uh, back then they had printers. And you still had card readers and, you know, stuff like that. I mean, there was still uh, some of the remnants of, uh, of uh, the let me call it the past, okay? Right. <laughs> and and uh, the, the thing uh, you should keep in mind, that architecture that was vetted just outside Greenwich by the, the, uh, the spread team, team, right? That's good, guys. Any program— <laughs> Any program that could run on that system, Trix 360, could run on those machines that were being shipped. It didn't make any difference. As a matter of fact, it'll run on today's Z14, which to me is mind-boggling. And I, you know, I don't know if people realize, you know, what a commitment the IBM company has to making that a common thing for our customers, so that they 
their transition from machine to machine sort of goes without uh, without much difficulty. I, I should say that with you know good, but you know putting a brand new mainframe computer in is a big deal. Right. But <laughs> you know it's um, uh, the architecture stays the same. We just keep making it bigger. Adding function and you know speed, and what have you. That says uh, mountains for the work that must have gone into that initial architecture. Yeah, I mean, it, this was to me, this was brilliant. What the what these uh, men came up with, uh, and uh, matter of fact, they they uh, just so you know, uh, their architecture said that the main memory would be sixteen million bytes. That's it, right? <laughs> and they invented the word. They said, "Okay, our unit." of uh, character representation will be the 8-bit byte. And they called it the byte. That's where it all started, 1961 at this meeting outside Greenwich. <laughs> and, you know, that's it. That's, that's life today, right? Which, leads, which yeah. leads to the kilobyte, which leads to the... Yeah, megabyte. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to go bigger and bigger and bigger. Right, huh. right, right. Yeah, imagine if those people had been fed. Maybe it would have been something completely right, different. Right, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, so that is the bipolar era. Remember, uh, went from 1980, early 81 was the 3080X that was shipped, uh, 3081 that was shipped, to the middle of the 90s. And I didn't talk much about it, and I should have at the beginning, but my metric for measuring our progress on mainframes is MIPS, billions of instructions per second. That's not so important today. Today, it's all about function, you know, fitting into the cloud, uh, security, cybersecurity, and all the rest of that. The function is key. The MIPS is like, let me, today is a little more secondary. Back then, MIPS was what it was all about. So that bipolar era, as a point of reference, started the 3081 in 1981, uh, had 10 MIPS. 10 MIPS, that's all. And it was these... Double digits. Yeah, eight. It took eight to 12 frames to do that. Frames. Five feet by five feet. Okay, 10 MIPS. Is this the first system where they started counting MIPS? uh, I think it is. I can't swear to that because... It's like when you talk about System 370, it's like noise level of MIPS. (laughs) But my whole career in the lab... I mean, MIPS was what it was all about. It was all about. And when we get into the CMOS era, it becomes kind of key. Right. So we went from uh, this 10 MIPS and these 8, 10, 12 frames to the middle 90s with something called, it was H6. Uh, and it ended up being, I think, in the 600 BIPS range. And just as a point of reference, today's Z14 I think is about 140,000 MIPS that fits in one frame. The frame is smaller than the, one of the frames I talked right. about before, okay? So, the, the, you know, technology is like an amazing uh, leverage to allow you to grow this. Well, there was, I've, I've just been getting to the, uh, the episode with Neil Ferguson where you're talking about the, uh, the, the processing capacity Per floor tile is like an interesting way of measuring things, like not just you know per dollar or you know per hour, but per floor tile, like the density of. Yeah, it's like uh, it's just hard to believe. I mean, I haven't done it, but uh, I think we ought to 
you know, think about our cell phones. An amount of compute power that's in your cell phones is uh, probably more compute power than they had when they went to the moon. Yeah, on oh, the, yeah. You know what I mean? I, I would trust that system before my phone, though. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't drop that often. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I got you through that solid-state era, yep. 360, 370. Then I taught you to the bipolar era, you know, this 100-chip TCMs, growth of Fishkill and what have you. And, and just, just quick, uh, you mentioned TCMs. That's thermal control module. Thermal conduction module. Conduction, thank Right, you. right. And, uh, I mean, I actually have one here that you could take a picture of and <laughs> put on. Right. Yeah. It's uh, a 3081. Uh, to me, it, it is an engineering masterpiece in terms of, number one, the chips, you know, the fact, the function that we put on them, and number two, how we cooled it. <clears throat> with these little pistons, was just amazing. Huh. Um, so we could take a picture of that if, mm-hmm. if that's helpful. And let me let me ask just for a frame of reference, like what's happening with the operating system at this point? Uh, it's it's expanding. It's becoming uh, adding virtual addressing, and uh, I'm not as skilled in the software side of the business. Okay, so I'm pro- I'm not the authority on that, <laughs> but. Uh, <clears throat> But to, that's that's the big deal. I, to me, the virtual it was what did we call it back then? MVS, 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 MVS right? Yeah. Yes, we are in MVS at this point. Okay, yeah, MVS, multiple virtual, virtual storage. So, yeah. So as you know, as opposed to where we are now, my God, it's like incredible. Right. I am not the expert in software, so I. I don't want to talk too much about it because I'll probably say something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The, the, we're now at the time that I'm actually at IBM. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so we're doing okay. Okay. A young Frank DeGilio arrives on the scene <laughs> yeah. with his Trans Am and long hair. <laughs> Not so, so much the Trans Am, but oh. maybe maybe the hair. Okay. You're blasting Phil Collins in. What, <laughs> <laughs> a widow's peeking out over there? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we went. Set the scene. Yeah. <laughs> so we went through the the bipolar era. Pretty pretty an amazing era, and uh, and you know often unbelievable uh, challenges. Uh, the uh, one ma- one machine. Uh, I'll never. We called it the H two. Uh, we shipped it in nineteen ninety, I think, and it had out of order execution, where you. Uh, you know, you go down a path, you know, you're if and that, and it assumes they're going to go this way. And, uh, oops, you know, when I really got the data back from memory, I went down the wrong path. So it began to learn how. So we, we that machine, we were about a year late in delivering it because the level of simulation that we had back then was nowhere near what we had today. Today... We, we would EC these TCMs every month, would put a whole new set of chips on these TCMs to, uh, to allow it to execute. So EC? radically different uh, capabilities back then to today. What's EC? That's our engineering change. Oh, okay. oh, right, right. That was like, uh, that's what engineers get paid for, to make changes. <laughs> but but this, this is kind of important, right? We, we started the out-of-order execution because – we were, we're starting to realize that we were coming to the limits of what bipolar can do, right? Ah, perfect, perfect lead into the next thing. The transition. Don't start, Frank. <laughs> yeah, this is perfect, right? Yeah. See how you came at the right time. Yeah. <laughs> so, what was happening then? Moore's Law 
was no longer in effect. What's Moore's Law? Moore's Law was a law. Use the word law in quotes. <laughs> Finger quotes. Yeah. Uh, that it was you would double performance every 18 to 24 months. That was what, you know, the hope was. So every turn of the technology crank, you could get, you know, twice the performance. Bipolar, it was taken like uh, four years. Mm. So it was getting to be a problem in terms of uh, level of, uh, you know, being able to get the performance we need. And remember what I told you back then, MIPS, millions of instructions per second, was really vital. And we probably started to draw our own target on those numbers. I look, look how much each one's getting better. Yeah. And now we're starting to. <laughs> yeah, starting to realize, right, it's slowing down on us. Number one, uh, so this is like <clears throat> the early 90s now. Okay, so what's really happening? So that's, that's happening. The other thing that's happening is PCs, you know, personal computers are the in thing. The world doesn't need mainframes anymore. We're all going <laughs> to run the world on personal computers, right? right? That's sort of what's happening. The next thing is Fishkill. Remember I told you with the bipolar, tremendous expansion in Fishkill. And um, the, the next turn of the crank, the fit up, the bipolar plant was just unaffordable. We could not, IBM could not afford to do it. It was just the business equation did not close. The uh, thing that was interesting was CMOS, uh, complementary metal oxide semiconductor, was still performance-wise weighing Moore's Law. They were like doubling performance every 18 months. So, and then the last thing was there was this frenzy is the mainframe is dead. <laughs> so this is the middle. Of, so there was this like frenzy going on. So this is the, the first time. The I was going to say, this is the first time. <laughs> we should like ring a bell every yep. time. <clears throat> so this is like in the early 90s, okay? All this is happening. So IBM realizes that we have to like uh, reset, reset of what we're doing. And remember I told you about Böblingen doing the low end of the System 370? They had started working on CMOS, use of CMOS in the mainframe. So IBM made the big decision in 1993 of a uh, uh, rather dramatic downsizing in terms of, you know, where we are here in Poughkeepsie and actually throughout the company in terms of resources. We could not afford to keep this thing rolling. We, it was just, the business was was in trouble here, okay? So that was the time, 1993. Unfortunately, we laid off like half, half the folks in the sites here in Poughkeepsie, uh, Fishkill, Kingston, and various other places around the world, okay? Uh, very tough times. But it was a necessary thing to sort of reset the equation, and we made our switch to CMOS, which was now still obeying Moore's Law. So it became a major change in the structure of the machine. Remember I told you about the 8, 10, 12, 14 frames? Okay, we're, we can because of the density of CMOS, we were able to squeeze it into one frame, maybe two frames, Okay. I mentioned Böblingen. Uh, they had started working on CMOS machines, so they had a machine that was called Squadrons, which was a system uh, uh, mainframe architecture machine. And from that, 
we began and used it, modified it, and began the venture of the CMOS era of computers. So that started in the mid-90s. It was an interesting thing that happened. We knew what we had to do in terms of we had to reclimb up this MIP curve. Remember I told you this little machine these Bibling and folks had was called Squadrons. It had 64 MIPS. That's it. The last bipolar went out had about 600. And we were going to stop making bipolar and start with CMOS and say, my God, what what are we going to do here? So we had to figure out how we were going to grow that 64 MIPS, catch up to where we left off bipolar, and then, of course, proceed further. And, and so, so the so the goal is the architecture did not change. At architecture all. still could run the same programs from that 360 machine <laughs> right. on that little squadrons. Right. And that's that's what I find amazing is I didn't know a couple of wrinkles of the story is that the uh, you know, obviously the architecture stays the same because 360 carries forward. This is I didn't realize that it coincided with the you know the you know the the layoffs. Yeah. So this had to work or else. Yeah. Nothing. This was this was bet your company. Actually, bet your company like they did back for System 360. That investment on the uh, 360, the little task force, those guys, it was a f- it was a four billion dollar investment back in the 60s. Wow, which probably equates to like 40 billion now. Yeah, this was we're going to bet the IBM company, the mainframe, which is the and you know to us is the uh, the main part of IBM. On this CMOS, this was a major, major decision on the part of IBM, and this is if, if I, you know, Nick D'Onofrio is probably a key factor here, mm-hmm. a name maybe some of you recognize. Right. But we're going to bet it on, okay? All right. So this is this is all your chips on the table plus your car keys right. and your mortgage and yeah. right, exactly. So we knew we, we had to go climb this this uh, MIP curve. I use that name, and so we had to figure out. We had much fewer people. And the question was not what we had to do, but how are we going to operate as a workforce, as a technical workforce? So in 1993, uh, a bunch of us leaders all met over in uh, Germany and uh, Black Forest, of all places in <laughs> Germany, okay? A place called Treeburg, uh, uh where they make uh, cuckoo clocks, okay, just as a point of reference. Curious where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a couple ideas, but I'm going to keep them to myself, I think. So, like I said, it was not so much what we're going to do, how are we going to interact with each other in terms of, you know, we have this IBM company on our shoulders to rebuild the mainframe with CMOS. And... Uh, and we came up with what uh, you know something we sort of call it the high quality of work life cycle, and had to do with number one trusting, you know, the folks next to you, confidence that they're going to do their job, being uh, open with each other, and then joint problems. We just had to trust and be committed as a team to make this happen, so that. Basically, uh, Poughkeepsie, Birlingen, and Endicott was involved in this. These three sites, uh, from a development perspective, were the ones who gave birth to the CMOS family. So we had this this, uh, beginning of CMOS 
and we called the machines. The squadron was that little guy, and the first machine was called Concerto C. The next one was called uh, Maestro for M. The next one was called Overture for the O, and the next one was called Symphony for the S. We had another one at the end called Opera. So CMOS had a little correlation to the name. We put out a new CMOS machine, this is hard to believe, every year. Every year we put out a new machine. I'm trying to remember the numbers. I told you that Squadron was 64. Concerto was about 160 MIPS. Uh, Maestro was, I think, 300 and change. And Symphony, not Symphony, Overture, came very, very close to catching the old bipolar. It came close to 500 MIPS, okay? But the real venture was, when are we going to break the 1,000 MIP barrier? The BIPPER, we called it, the BIPPER, 1,000 MIPS. I gave a lot of talks back then, and one, one of the talks I gave was uh, from, uh, I used a quote out of Apollo 13, that failure is not an option, you know. I actually have a white vest. Uh, I don't know if you have a story behind the vest in Apollo. Oh, yeah. The uh, flight controller, uh, Gene, uh, Cern, uh, Gene Cernan, right? was his name, right? Uh, his wife, when he was a controller, he, she, his wife would make him a new vest for each one of the missions. So I have this white vest, uh, and I went around, failure is not an option. So we did, in 1998, uh, come out with uh, Symphony, and it had 1,000 MIPS on it. As a point of reference, our principal competition back then was Hitachi. And it wasn't, uh, it was like direct competition, meaning architecturally the same computer. Uh, They had their own operating system, but they had their same, uh, the Prince Ops that we use, they had. So... And they were our principal comp- competition. When we did Symphony, uh, the 1,000 MIPS, they, they folded up their tent. That was it. They, uh, they, they, uh, they gave in, and, they, uh, and we, we overcame them, okay? And were they doing bipolar at the time? They were doing bipolar, okay. right, right. And, and CMOS was a big deal for the customers, too, because it was the first time that they didn't need all that infrastructure you know, all the, the cooling infrastructure and everything, right? Because the CMOS machines were not water-cooled, right? They were, they the, were air-cooled. The initial ones were uh, air-cooled, but they became, eventually became uh, uh, water-cooled too because, you know, they became more dense and uh, had, began to have the same problems as the old bipolar. Right. So just a point of reference, today's <clears throat> machine being shipped is called the Z14. So think about it. Uh, where that number came from. It's actually the 14th CMOS machine IBM has delivered. Oh. Con- uh, squadrons was, we called it back then G1. Concerto was G2. Maestro was G3. You could actually, you know, it really was Z1, Z2, Z3. So the CMOS family is what it's all about. That was like the 1998 that's when I retired. I officially retired, okay, from IBM. I had 30 years at IBM and spent half my career in development, half in the, in the plant. But I came back as a consultant 
1999, and I've been here ever since. So wow. I have a total of 50 years in this business. So CMOS kept climbing, as you know, to the machine we have today, the Z14, which is around, I think it's around 140,000 MIPS. And uh, it's water-cooled and uh, very similar to bipolar. CMOS is not by following Moore's laws anymore. You don't get anywhere near the performance bump with each turn of the crank. So our machines now are getting to be more, uh, let me call, I call them flatter, where there's more and more processors in the machine. I, I, I tell the honest goodness truth, I, I don't even know how many there are in the Z14. There's an awful lot of them. Probably some major things that happened along the way besides technical innovation, to me was, uh, you know, reliability of the machine. You know, that is amazing, the reliability of uh, the mainframe machines. Uh, when you think about, when you think about uh, the mainframe, and I got some data from a, a DE, a, a, a distinguished engineer, Kevin Schum, about, uh, you know, where our machines are used. And and let me just let me just uh, read some of it. Ninety-two of the top hundred world banks use mainframes. Ten out of ten of the largest insurers use mainframes. Twenty-three of the top twenty-five U.S. retailers use mainframes. Twenty-three of the twenty-five world's largest airlines use mainframes. There's thirty billion business trans- transactions per day on mainframes. Six billion trillion dollars of card. Every time you use your card, your credit card, there's a high probability that that went through a mainframe somewhere. One built here in Poughkeepsie or in Montpellier or 80 percent of the world's corporate data resides or originates on mainframes. And 91 percent of the of the CIO say new customer facing apps are accessing the mainframes. Just you know, it is a it touches almost every human being on the face of the earth. So it's just a point of reference in terms of impact that mainframes have had. So uh, I, I I would say uh, you know that that's my story. <laughs> uh, to me, the most important thing we all do is keep those eighteen wheelers. Now we put like multiple machines on one eighteen wheeler. Right. Okay. Yeah. You can put a half a dozen of them on one eighteen wheeler now. As opposed you always to, know it's a good quarter when right. there's just a <laughs> line of them. Watch the eighteen wheelers. <laughs> yeah. You know, everything we do it's like it's a, it's amazing to me. The the level of complexity. Oh I know I did want to talk about a little bit about uh reliability. You know we worked hard at uh making the C, uh not only CMOS, just Mainframes in general, every iteration of them, more and more reliable in terms of impact to the customers. You know, back back in the early days of bipolar, uh, you know, we were talking about 30 years between a failure, failure that would take a customer down, right? <clears throat> you look at today's data, you know, you're over 100 years. It's like, you know, just just amazing, uh, the reliability of the machines. And... Uh, and to us, that's really one of the most important things that a mainframe can offer uh, our customers. So um, 
That's that's the story. That's how it came about. I, maybe it was a little bit too much to swallow in, in an hour here. No, but we, we we decided we wanted to go like long form on this episode because it's you know to try to fit this into uh, twenty minutes would yeah. be. It's hard to fit a lot of the the details of of this unique subject into a, a shorter episode. So uh, I think I think longer is better here in this instance. Yeah, especially you know a lot of the work that we've we've had on the podcast has hasn't been very hardware oriented, especially hardware history oriented. So so this has really been perfect. Yeah, absolutely. I learned a lot. Thank you. Thanks. Old man Charlie. Run us out. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. That's contact at terminaltalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence, signing off.